Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, uh, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at Stephen Wardell dot, uh, at twitter.stephenwardell. Um, our show today is What's Hot in PharmaTech? What are the big pain points in pharma and how can tech fix them? Our guest today is Jeremy Sohn. Jeremy is the managing partner of P74 Ventures and the former global head of digital partnerships and investments at Novartis. You can follow him at twitter.com slash jsohn12. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format of the call. It'll be about 90 minutes long. And in the first half, Jeremy and I will be discussing the macro picture and news and trade journal topics and other topics. And then in the second half, we'll talk about the topic of the day, which is what's hot in PharmaTech. After that, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register an account on call-in and you can still do that for this show. To register, you go to callin.com or the call in social podcasting app uh, on your device uh, and create an account and then visit this page again. Uh, and then you'll be able to ask questions and comment. Um, so uh, uh, welcome to the show, Jeremy. And can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. And thank you, everyone. Uh, my name is Jeremy Sohn. Uh, I am a managing partner. I am a founder of a new venture fund called P74 Ventures. Uh, we're focused on this space, PharmaTech, um, and I've dedicated the last decade or more uh, to helping uh, not really pharma companies, but helping ourselves, patients, consumers, uh, people who are concerned about healthcare, uh, get access to drugs better, faster, and cheaper. And we believe uh, that one of the best ways to do that is by helping drive innovation uh, and business model transformation within the pharmaceutical industry. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a, vet, uh, uh, a venture capitalist. And, uh, and then I've spent uh, uh, much of the last seven, eight years at uh, helping drive innovation at, uh, at, at pharma, uh, within pharma. That's great. Well, thanks for joining us today. So our, our first big topic is macro news. And here we have the Fed's Jerome Powell today declined to hike rates. So people thought he might hike rates 25 basis points. He said previously he may do one more rate hike by the end of December, um, but it, it wasn't today. Uh, and, and I think the market thinks if he does one, it'll be 25 basis points. Um, and, uh, uh, and then he made comments where he said, so this is kind of bullish for the market to not hike rates, but then he made comments where he said that he thinks rates will stay higher for longer because of the need to tame inflation. Um, and so personally, from the perspective of the innovation community, I would like to see him stop raising rates. I'd like to see rates start to be cut uh, and the market reacted. So this is this is good, but not great. And the market reacted to this by being the Nasdaq, which is the growth stocks on Wall Street. were down half a point on the news. Um, so inflation has been slowing. Inflation was 3.7 percent for August, the CPI print. And CNN is saying that they expect inflation will continue to slow. That's relatively good news baked into the market already. 
Uh, and lastly, a number of economists, including uh, the Goldman Sachs economists, have been saying for over a year they expect us to go into a recession in the second half of this year. But now they've been revising their forecasts and they're saying that uh, there's a reduced chance of a recession. I think Goldman Sachs reduced it from 25 to 15 percent a couple weeks ago. Um, and that's great news for young companies because recessions cause enterprise buyers to feel poor and spend less on tech. And so if you're in the innovation economy, you, you like soft landings, no landing, no recession, all that's great. Um, uh, so uh, that's the, the kind of macro update. That's, that's, that, that's good compared to six months ago, good compared to a year ago um, for the innovation economy. Jeremy, any, any thoughts on the news today or the, the overall growth, uh, uh, in, Fed interest rates and inflation story? I think you captured nicely. Obviously, as a venture capitalist, we're worried about making sure that there's a flow of capital in the market and that, you know, uh, companies are willing and able to spend money. And so um, we're not out of the water, but uh, yeah, to the extent that there will be this uh, uh, miraculous soft landing, uh, I think no one was really expecting such a thing that uh, to the extent that it actually happens, I think the market, uh, it's a good thing for both investors and entrepreneurs. That's great. And then also the NASDAQ up over 35% since the start of the year. I don't think anyone saw that coming. If you, if you cycle back to January or December, things seemed pretty grim. Valuations seemed pretty low. One of the smartest things you could have done with your spare cash would just be to put it in the NASDAQ over the last um, nine months or so. Uh, but that's good news because that indicates that tech is, is up. So one of the big problems facing in investors was in private companies was that the public comps were saying valuations have fallen really low. Um, and, and that caused, it caused big problems. It caused, you know, uh, investors to be unsure about investing. It caused uh, companies to not want to take down rounds. Uh, but this is kind of a nice recovery of valuations to see the NASDAQ up, you know, 35% since the start of the year. And then interestingly, into this high NASDAQ, we are seeing something I've been watching very closely, which is the IPO window. So some really big things have been happening this week with the IPO window. The IPO window has been, been, has been closed for like over six quarters. Um, and that has meant that has sort of jammed up the innovation economy, which includes being reliably able to raise money at all at all stages of development, including the stage of going public. Um, and so people have been very worried, been watching the IPO window. It's unpredictable. But just this week, we've seen Instacart, uh, which was long rumored to be on the IPO path, uh, floated and is up 12% um, from its public offer price. Uh, Clat, everyone knows Instacart. Um, and Instacart is viewed by, by, um, by mutual funds and major investors as being a tech company. Then Clavio, Clavio is a SaaS marketing automation company, and they IPO'd, they're up over 20%. Um, and ARM, which is a UK chip maker that makes graphics chips or, or massively parallel chips, and these are the kinds of chips that, that AI companies want, uh, they IPO'd, and they're up 25% after the IPO. So what, what, we're look, what we're looking for in digital health, where digital health is software companies that sell into the healthcare budgets, uh, we want to see uh, tech be able to IPO 
and we want to see big tech companies successfully IPO, which means they float and then they go up and then they stay up after they float. That's what we would like to see. Um, and then if that happens enough, then the IPO window for tech is probably open. And then digital health companies can start to go out. And there's many digital health unicorns that may go out. And so um, I saw last week and this week some commentators saying that the IPO window for tech may have opened up. Um, about three or four weeks ago, I think I heard on the the All In podcast, Jason Calacanis, the commentator there, he was he was the first person I heard to call and say that the IPO window has opened up. Um, but we haven't seen digital health companies go out yet, uh, and it may be some months before they do, even if the IPO window has opened up. So, Jeremy, do you think the, that do you think that with this week in September that the IPO window has opened up and we're going to see a lot more, or do you think this we're still testing the waters here? Uh, you know, I think the uh, we're still testing the waters. I'd like to be optimistic. The uh, you know, let me let me make two comments. So, you know, the IPO uh, window opening up is critical to make sure that there's liquidity in the market. So. Uh, for those that don't fully appreciate this, let me try to just explain. Uh, in order for for investors to put money to work, you you know, uh, or funds to put money to work, they need they go and raise from large investors, large institutions. That money comes usually from a recycling, so uh, some sort of exit, usually public exits, and so uh, um, they need that liquidity in order to allocate to new funds. Uh, so the IPO window opening up is the first phase of liquidity easing in the market. So this is a great sign. Um, usually the first, the performance of the first two or three or four uh, give, you know, create momentum. And so it's positive to see that ARM and Instacart and Clavio are all doing well. We hope that persists for some time. Uh, I think if that, if you continue to see, even if it just sort of holds steady for the next, uh, you know, three, four weeks, you'll see that second wave. That second wave is where I'll, I'll uh, uh, would go out on a limb uh, and feel that we're, we're there, uh, but it could close just as quickly, not to be pessimistic, I hope this doesn't happen, but uh, it could close just as quickly as it opened if it doesn't, if we don't see that sort of, you know, strength here uh, and momentum in, on these first uh, uh, early, uh, uh, early uh, uh, companies. So. That's great. Thanks. That, that's very insightful. And, and I'll add here that what's often happening here is that there are portfolio managers at BlackRock, Fidelity, um, Vanguard, and other funds, uh, and that they have an appetite for IPOs. They'd like to invest in IPOs, uh, but they don't want to invest in IPOs if there's if there's low other demand in the marketplace and if the stock price might go down and often they make promises that they will hold the stock for up to a year after IPO. So they're, 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 they're on the hook. Uh, they, they, they bear a lot of risk. And so they are watching this very carefully. Um, it matters to their careers. And if they see that these IPOs, you know, there is demand from mutual funds to buy these, but if they see that the, that the aftermarket performance of these, the after IPO performance is good and they go up, um, and stay up, uh, then they'll they'll want to uh, invest in more. Uh, but if it if the market tanks, if these these particular stocks don't stay up, then they'll be, they'll remain cautious. They won't invest in more IPOs. In addition, there's a lot of um, unicorn companies in tech and in digital health that are watching this. And 
if they start hearing that the IPO window is open, their boards are going to go tell their management teams to prepare to IPO. And they're going to start hiring advisors and they're going to start you know, taking the steps they need uh, to get out there. And that process, you know, I, I think takes about nine months. And so if, if some companies have been ready for a while to IPO, we're seeing that happen. If the we get the green light, then maybe nine months from now, we may see many companies uh, IPO. So, and then there's, there's also SPACs, which can move, move much faster than IPOs as well, but SPAC performance has not been great. Um, and uh, I'll also add that there's an analyst at, um, at PitchBook, uh, Aaron DeGagney, and he's the only guy I've seen put together sort of a collection of those companies spoken of in digital health as likely to IPO. And that is Noom. They're the Weight loss company that sells to consumers, Roe, they're the consumer-oriented uh, online pharmacy. Everly Health, that's direct consumer testing. Quantum Health, I think that's na navigation, health navigation for employers. So very interesting. Um, a lot of consumer in there. I'm not sure why we're seeing a lot of consumer in that this particular list. And then quantum in the employer market, that's a very hot market, has been for a long time. A lot of companies that could be the size size of a unicorn that could IPO in that in that market. So Jeremy, any any reflection on that or further thoughts on on the IPO window opening up? I mean, I, I love the list. It's a, it's a list of great companies. I am surprised a little bit um, to the extent that it's consumer health. Consumer health was the darling uh, of the markets for uh, a number of years during during uh, the most you know recent four or five years, um, it the markets kind of turned pretty heavily on consumer, and so um, you know I'm hopeful and and uh, again certainly supportive of uh, of these companies as a consumer and as a as a believer in the companies and and uh, would love to see them IPO. Um, but it is surprising that it's more consumer than B two B or B two B to C. That, that's great. And then so I, I have a thesis with my audience where I'm bullish and optimistic on a certain issue. But the question is, you know, we, we've seen the volume of deals in digital health, private VC deals in digital health. Um, so 2020 and 2021 were boom years. And then 2022 and 2023 have seen a, a fall in the number of deals that's made it harder for entrepreneurs to, to raise money. Uh, and there's a saying that I have that lead investors aren't leading, which is to say that a lot of them are saying there's too much uncertainty and they're waiting until there's a resolution to the overhang of uncertainty before they get they start investing at the same pace. And I'm saying that we could see a significant uptick in the next two quarters. That's by the end of this year in number of, of deals at the stage of seed A, B, C. Um, and I think the market's saying that we're not going to see that uptick for at least four quarters. So I'm two quarters more optimistic than the market. And so to grade how that's going, I, uh, I check in about this every week. I think that's going okay, which is to say that I think you need two things to happen and you'll see VCs invest at a higher rate. Uh, and the first is the IPO window to open. So we've taken a significant step just this week toward that happening. Not going to declare that it has happened, but especially for digital health yet, but we're moving in that direction. And the second is for the Fed to stop raising rates. Um, when the Fed raises rates, the NASDAQ pulls in, investors feel less certain about the future, tech becomes less attractive to investors. Uh, and so we had the Fed today um, not raise rates. Uh, and it, you know, it, it, it said that rates may stay higher for longer. That's not great, um, but what we want is, is 
if the Fed stops raising rates and ideally says it has stopped raising rates, that reduces that uncertainty. So to simplify matters, those are the two things I'm watching. And I'm a, and I'm a little more optimistic we'll see an uptick in the number of deals um, as compared to the last six quarters, call it, in the next in the next two quarters, by the end of the next two quarters. Jeremy, any thoughts on my thesis? I think I'm a little more bullish than the typical person out there. And you, do you think, would you agree with it or would you would you have the more conservative view of four quarters from now? I mean, I think you could, you could basically, both can be right. So uh, I'm also a glass half full, so uh, uh, I'm an optimist. Um, I am, uh, have been pleasantly uh, uh, enthusiastic with some of the um, uh, renewed activity on the VC front. Um, you know, we pretty much saw a very quiet May, June, July. Uh, in August, I started seeing some new companies uh, and more announcements. Um, I do think you're going to continue to see, I would say, probably, you know, 30, 40 percent of the volume that we used to see, uh, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Um, but that should steadily increase as you get, as you said, as you start to see uh, liquidity ease. It does, unfortunately, take, uh, as I said before, IPO basically is the beginning. It's stage one. Uh, IPO basically gives some investors the opportunity to exit. That then takes six months until you're, you know, or more to, until you're lock up. And then you need to then reallocate, right, to, to funds or to direct investments. So that six to 12 month window uh, from the time of an IPO is, is you know, kind of should, you know, is, is understandable. And so until these things begin to, you know, more, you see more IPOs and then you give it six months, 12 months, um, that, that kind of explains, again, those four quarters. So we will see more, you know, we people are getting, people who have money are beginning to lean in a little bit more. Uh, people who don't have money, hopefully they'll have some liquidity soon. But uh, um we're not out of the water for 12 to 18 months. Uh, great, thanks. So then industry reports. Um, I haven't seen any this week that I want to call to my audience's attention. Uh, but Jeremy, are you seeing any reports our audience should know about that, that are, that are you know, making some interesting points in the marketplace? So this came out about a month ago, but um, the only one that I would uh, you know, highly recommend is Evaluate Pharma did a, uh, um, a really thoughtful analysis. Don't agree with everything, but a really thoughtful analysis on the pharmaceutical industry called the World Preview 2023, Pharma's Age of Uncertainty. Um, if you want a deep dive on pharma, um, it's a great report. Um, I also have been tracking somewhat religiously PitchBook and other related uh, market reports to see some of these trends. They do a really nice job on a daily or weekly basis looking at different uh, key performance metrics and um, keep an eye out there. You'll, you'll see uh, some of these leading indicators in terms of um, new funds being uh, uh, money, again, going to uh, to existing funds and new funds and uh, uh, and then also some performance that we're seeing, you know, over uh, over the last 12 months and moving forward. So two, two areas to, to focus on. Uh, thanks. And for our audience, if you have some some uh, macro comments or industry reports that you've heard about that you want, you can type it in the chat. We may react to it. Um, uh, but that so uh, but feel free. You're, you're welcome to engage with us in the chat room on these topics. Uh, and Jeremy, so the the title of the report as far as age of uncertainty. Is that referring to maybe to pharma prices uh, or to uh, a, a troubling um, what what is the term that's used? You know, the, 
that that the, a cliff of of unpatent drugs in the future, uh, or yeah. it, it, what, what's or, you know is it, is that a negative uncertainty, and when what's it referring to? Well, you know, I, I think this is this is the reason why uh, I'm excited about where we spend our time, which is uh, you know focus on on business model transformation for the for the industry. Um, you know, the industry has and they deserve uh, tremendous credit for the extraordinary advancements that uh, that the you know the biotech industry, the pharma industry, uh, has achieved over the last you know uh, two, three, four decades. Um, but the pressures on the pharmaceutical industry are are uh, are unseen. This is a you know um, the trifecta, if you will. You got pricing pressure, you got patent cliffs, uh, you've got uh, competitive pressure coming in from you know the extraordinary investments in the biotech industry over the years. Uh, you've got a reduction in, in the overall uh, efficiency, R and D efficiency. The market is always looking at how much do you know, pharma companies spend, how much are they generating? What is revenue are they generating? What is their growth rate? Uh, um, they, you see declining numbers for almost five years straight now on price, on, on R&D efficiency, on, on the years of, uh, uh, of pan-free, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, pressure, um, all pressure, you know, almost every major indicator is showing that pharmaceutical companies need to continue to evolve their business model in order, in, in order to maintain the, uh, the high margins and the high growth that they've, that they've enjoyed and deserve, again, over, over the last number of years. So uh, it makes, again, it, it creates a nice environment for where I spend my days, which is, is, is uh, thinking about not just how do you create novel uh you know, transformative disease modifying drugs, but also how do you help leverage technology to to make that happen better, faster, and cheaper? Very interesting. Thanks. Um, so now we move on to our next uh, category, which is uh, trade journal news and general news that we thought was worth bringing to our audience's attention. So I like to focus on fundraising announcements. I learn a lot from those and. Uh, like you, Jeremy, I noticed that this week there were a bunch of fundraising announcements. Uh, and there, you know, the, at least the sources I followed, there were not at the end of August, and it was still a little slow in early September. Now we're mid-September. There were a lot of fundraising announcements. So if this keeps going, this could be the uptick that we're looking at, looking for. It could also just be the case that people saved their announcements for, for mid-September when the audience was paying attention because people don't pay attention in the first week of September or the last two weeks of August. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure yet, but it was, it was a welcome trend. Um, and I'll just, I'll call out very interesting. So, um, uh, their GI health platform, Vivante health, their CEO, Bill Snyder, um, they raised 31 million in a series B, um, led by Mercado partners. That's Joe Kaiser there. Um, and uh, in a syndicate that, that included Health Catalyst, Intermountain Ventures, uh, Semper Virens, Seven Wire, a very prominent fund, Human Capital, and Distributed Ventures. So this is really great. What stands out to me uh, is a couple things about this. So the first is that for the last six quarters, we've had this trend where the rounds don't look like they looked during the boom times. During the boom times, 
uh, funds had specialized roles. There were famous venture funds that had been around for over a decade that were always lead investors, uh, et cetera. And, and um, now during um, this, the downturn, you've seen all sorts of changes. You've seen funds that you weren't familiar with are suddenly lead investors. You see corporate venture funds that don't usually lead are leading sometimes. Um, you see all sorts of things like that. And so here, I'm not that familiar with Mercado Partners, but here, here they are leading it out, you know, around with an outstanding syndicate. So that's that's great. They call themselves a growth fund. This is a Series B. This is not um, growth equity or private equity. So I'm not sure why a growth fund is a lead investor in a Series B in digital health, uh, but they're they're welcome. And I know it's challenging for CEOs to raise rounds like this. So I congratulate Bill Snyder for pulling it off. Um, not everyone has to play the specialized roles they played during the boom years. Um, and uh, so that's one thing I noticed. The second is, this is very interesting because one of the hottest sectors in digital health is, is software companies selling into the employer programmatic benefits budget. And so this is companies selling diabetes and other metabolic and musculoskeletal and cancer symptom management and mental health and, um, and hypertension in that category. And that's, that's a hot category. It's a big category. It includes um, the two most prominent, which were Teladoc uh, Livongo and uh, Omada are in that category. Uh, a, a lot's going on. Hinge is in that category. Kaya is in that category. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that there's a new product and apparently a new product category being added to that suite, which is GI health. Um, so I'm glad to see, uh, you know, uh, the, um, uh, the benefit leaders at Progressive Large Enterprises, uh, you, know, invent, you know, are apparently buying enough to support a company like Vivante in an additional um, product category in that suite, which is GI Health. So I, I often wondered what would be the next one, and it looks like the next one in that suite is going to be GI Health. So that's one thing I noticed. Um, and um, uh, so um, about that particular deal. So uh, and I'll, I'll just I'll cover a couple others. So then we had Inbound Health. That's CEO Dave Kerwer. Um, a value-based care enablement platform for health systems that enables home care. And they raised a $30 million Series B from HealthQuest Capital and follow on from existing investors, McKesson Ventures and Flair. So that, there it is. That is a classic pre-crash deal right there. That's outstanding venture funds that invest in digital health. Um, so uh, we had we had a, a lot of deals, including deals that look like, um, according to their, their syndicate, looks like, deals from before the downturn. So we're starting to see that again. So that, that's very nice. I like this category, value-based care enablement platform for health systems that enables home care. Um, so that's uh, you know a second deal. So Jeremy, any, any, any thoughts on those deals? <clears throat> Just two, you know, two quick comments. Uh, you know, shout out actually to Joe Kaiser and Mercado. Uh, I know Joe, I know Mercado, great, great fund, small fund, but, but uh, they, they do great work. Uh, and I love your comments specifically around the fact that it's a uh, many new names in the in the venture uh, in the uh, you know in the venture industry there. Uh, that doesn't mean, by the way, that they're new funds. Uh, but you know, you made a comment earlier around you know venture funds leading. Uh, maybe the current environment where a lot of the big name venture funds have been sitting a little bit on the sidelines or distracted by their existing for portfolio, it's given the opportunity for. Uh, that next tier of funds who may be just as good, if not, you know, even better, 
uh, funds like my own, you know, that probably people don't know yet, uh, you know, to step up and and uh, and emerge on on the scene. So um, I'm excited. Actually, I love when I see new names. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Um, and so next, uh, you know, this has actually been the last six quarters have been a time of layoffs and wind downs and bankruptcies. It's been depressing. There, uh, there's there's often more of those over the last six quarters uh, than than fundraisers, it seems at times. So this week, we also saw the news of Babylon Health, the UK telehealth company that was once valued at $2 billion. Um, they declared bankruptcy a couple weeks ago, and their assets were sold this week for less than $1 million. Um, and so what I'm hearing is that we're going to see more of this. We're going to see more down rounds. We're going to see more layoffs. We're going to see more belt tightening. Um, we're going to see more that there were a lot of companies that in the past in digital health that didn't really have strong product market fit, didn't really have customers that, that loved them and that they really solved hard problems for. And those companies were able to sort of bridge their way from year to year um, and now in this downturn, those companies, the weakest companies are the ones that simply can't raise another round, can't cut enough and are facing this problem. So um, another interesting story um, not, uh, you know, is that Achille announced last week that it will shift away from its legacy prescription digital therapeutic strategy. So I, I, I couldn't believe this when I saw it. Um, and it will rely on non-prescription user services. So most people in our audience will know Achille. They do the video game for ADHD for kids. Um, and this has often been held up as a, as a really out, outstanding example of what the, the, the therapeutic modality of software can do for patients in areas like neuro. Um, uh, and some amazing features of the Achille product that I have loved is that the, the game, the product, is the monitoring, is the diagnosis, is the therapy and is the adherence tracking and is the adherence boosting? It's all in the product. And when you get a, a set of prescription pills from the pharmacy, it comes with none of those except for the, the pill therapeutic. Uh, but the amazing thing about software as a modality is it can do all of that. Uh, and Achilles product does all of that. So it was sad to see that the company also laid off 40% of its workforce. Um, it, it, it's a real market for parents to buy Achilles product for their kids to take in lieu uh, in place of taking a drug for ADHD or or with taking a drug for ADHD. But the pathway of of um, you know, Achilles chose to go down a difficult pathway that had the potential of having a very high price point, um, uh, which was to be cleared by the FDA, prescribed by prescribers, reimbursed by payers, used by a patient in the care of a physician. And instead of that, they're going down a pathway of, of um, going on the consumer pathway where they will probably make fewer claims uh, about what they can do um, and uh, charge a lower price um, uh, for what they do. So they laid off some of their workforce uh, and CEO Eddie Martucci cited issues with payer reimbursing the product. Well, that was known for a long time in this category. It's been disappointing how uh, payers have reimbursed uh, products in this category. And it's sad to see this happen to Achille, a Boston company, just a, a couple months after Pear uh, went bankrupt um, for uh, uh, you know, another Boston co company and a pioneering company. So the story of Babylon, the story of Achille, uh, Jeremy, any thoughts about, um, about those? Yeah, one quick one on Babylon and then one, one quick comment on Achille. Um, 
In terms of Babylon, you know, uh, I won't comment on whether it was a good company or a bad company. Just I think it's a, a emblematic of um, some of the challenges. You know, when interest rates were really low, a lot of good companies and some bad companies took out a lot of debt because debt seemed almost free. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, and we saw this with the banking crisis that, you know, when interest rates change as quickly as they did, all of a sudden what seemed like it was free money is now really, really expensive money. And you were looking at going from almost call it seven to 8% interest rates to, or 9% interest rates to like 15, 16, 17% interest rates. And if you don't have that picked or, or if at some point it actually comes and you have to pay that off in the current market environments, you can get caught sideways. And a lot of, again, a lot of companies good or bad are getting caught in that situation. And from what I am told, uh, actually the big debt cliff uh, is likely to hit mid 2024. And so if there is some risk in the market, uh, it'll be that as bigger companies, established companies who took on a lot of debt. Uh, if interest rates do stay high to your comment uh, from, you know, regarding the Fed, uh, if interest rates stay high, we're, um, the markets are going to you know, need to figure out how they address this world of hurt because uh, you can't afford uh, it'll be hard to refinance and re and and uh, um, and we many of these companies just simply can't afford the debt that they took on. Um, in terms of Achilles, you know, again, I, I people who know me know that uh, um, I'm a huge fan of uh, digital therapeutics, prescription digital therapeutics. I think it's a travesty what's going on in the market. Uh, uh, insurers are not doing right by patients. I think the FDA, unfortunately, as much good as they have done, they haven't done enough to, you know, to find an appropriate pathway for these are drugs. I'm sorry. They are not devices. They're not over the counter, pro over the counter products. These are drugs. They are well tested. They, in many cases, you know, have outperform or equally perform, you know, traditional uh, molecules. Uh, and, uh, and, and patients will suffer as a result. So I, I wish only the best for the industry and for Achilles. This is not a comment about the strength of their product. Uh, it's just a reality. And so, you know, we all need to do our part to uh, uh, continue to, to, to push the industry uh, and all components of the industry to step up and make sure that these drugs continue to stay part of, uh, of the arsenal that we have to treat, you know, ourselves and our loved ones. It's just, uh, it's just a shame. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, also about Achille, um, not only do prescription digital therapeutics, it's a different modality, you know, small molecule is capable of very different things than large molecule and genetic engineering is capable of very different things than small molecule. And so um, digital therapeutics, the software modality is capable of very different things than than small molecule or large molecule. And we, we might expect it to be good in areas like, like neuro or replacing cognitive behavioral therapy or other areas like that. And we're still, we're still discovering where it's strong. Um, but one of the really special things, so we, we, we could expect it to do things that, that molecular therapies couldn't do. Um, and that that's very important. And one of the real intriguing things about it is that there's no side effects or nearly zero side effects with um, software therapeutics. And, and when you think of the case of ADHD, oftentimes a kid, maybe a kid who's due to be prescribed Ritalin, which has side effects, you can see why the public, why parents would want an option like Achilles. Um, so they could, they could treat their kid perhaps with equivalent efficacy and no side effects. So, um, uh, so and Jeremy, did, did you have any stories you wanted to bring to our audience? Yeah, just uh, um, 
you know, uh, a couple of, of highlights. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Sempre Health. So the space that I follow again is PharmaTech. So Sempre is a company, Anuradi is the founder uh, and CEO. Um, I met that company three years ago, four years ago, and I'm excited and was excited to see that this is a medication adherence and behavioral uh, motivation play. So how do you encourage uh, through behavioral economics, individuals to refill their scripts. And they found a really interesting, unique way to uh, play around the, with the triangle uh, marketplace between pharma companies and payers and patients to be able to create a behavioral economic model that seems to work, not in all cases, but seems to work. And so kudos to them for raising about 20 million. Um, uh, Mural Health, uh, another company, uh, was, this was announced yesterday, uh, good friend Steve Krauss and, and the Bessemer folks uh, invested $8 million to lead that round as a Series A. So it's nice to see, again, sort of early uh, early investment. This is in Sam, who's a, a repeat uh, a player in the industry in this space. Uh, Mural Health focuses on um Again, sort of the behavioral economics, but thinking about clinical trial participation and how do you eliminate some of the friction uh, for for participants. The last is actually a little bit of a contrast to Achille, which is um, this isn't exactly an investment, although it is technically dollars coming in, is Click Therapeutics. I was uh, uh, intrigued to see that as much as Achilles going into the OTC uh, space, uh, Click Therapeutics uh, through a partnership uh, with Indivor uh, is uh, making a, a new play, uh, almost following the path that uh, the pair uh, unfortunately vacated around uh, uh, opiate uh, use disorder and substance use disorder. And so glad to see uh, that that continues to remain an important area. It is uh, the second largest or now the first largest epidemic in the world around uh, substance use disorder. And so uh, again, an important treatment for patients that need it and families that need it. And so, you know, hopefully they'll they'll be successful. So just three examples, there are many more, uh, um, but hopefully emblematic again, what's going on on the pharma side of things. But that's great to see. Um, so now I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip over evaluation discussion just for time reasons and go to uh, an overview of consolidation in digital health. So here, it's very interesting. So first of all, I think we that um, digital health is a sector there have been something like over 1,400 software companies started in healthcare since 2009. That was the birth of the zero interest rate policy. So a lot of capital flooding the sector. And every year, market analysts have predicted consolidation in the digital health sector. And every year, in retrospect, it was disappointing. There was not as much consolidation as people thought. Those young companies were able to stay independent, pursue their own independent paths. Um, and now, again, we're hearing uh, market analysts say that there should be and will be more consolidation in digital health. Um, but there's mixed signals, so I want to discuss some of those. Um, so it's it being driven by uh, company, some companies being strong in current market conditions and having access to capital, others that might have a good market position, but being weak on their 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 cap, their cap table being weak and not having access to capital. That's one condition. Another is in digital health benefits. That's the world of, of like uh, uh, Teladoc and, and Accolade. Um, the buyer 
is wanting to do an enterprise buy of suites. And so there's reasons on a product basis for companies that, that have partial suites to buy the point solutions that fill out their suite. That's a, a cause of consolidation in that sector. And then in healthcare IT, that's companies like Cerner and Epic um, selling into the hospital budgets. Again, the buyers, the hospital CIOs are looking at making an enterprise buy. And so that's that's suggesting a consolidation where the bigger companies buy the, 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 the hot point solutions from the smaller companies in that marketplace. So there's a lot of drivers of possible M&A in this sector, which has never really truly had a major consolidation wave since, since 2009, which was the starting gun for a massive entry of new companies, talent, capital into the sector. So we're seeing Business Insider and also M&A in general has been low for the last six quarters as well. It's been, it's been hurt by the same market sort of uh, downturn that, that's also been hurting fundraises as well. So Business Insider had a story saying that M&A uh, is, is starting to pick up um, in, in general in the economy. And so I'm wondering whether it's picking up in, in digital health. And I, I don't see it yet, but I, I think we will see some. And then also on the All In podcast, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya there, he, he said, M&A is dead. And he didn't see it picking up. So if it picks up in tech, we could probably expect if it picks up in tech, the same forces will allow it to pick up in digital health as well, which is mostly software companies. So we're seeing we're seeing tech observers saying M&A is dead with no date for M&A to pick up. Um, and then a, an aggravating factor here is, interestingly, the Biden administration has been very negative on M&A on, on, on mergers, and uh, they have proposed stricter regulations on mergers. They've stopped some mergers. Um, and they, uh, I think the most prominent uh, face of this in the Biden administration is Lena Khan, who's at the FTC, and she sought to block a number of mergers, including Microsoft's takeover of Activision Blizzard. Um, so, uh, and um, so in general, I think uh, government negativity on consolidation is really bad for the innovation economy, for innovators, because, um, you know, you you took on $40 million of capital and you're trying to deliver a return. You know, how do you do that? You can go public. That's that's selling yourself to the public. You can be acquired. That's selling yourself to a consolidator um, or you can remain an independent company, but that may not be the best pathway for you. So if the government is simply being negative on M&A, that, that's really bad for, um, for, uh, uh, for the innovation economy. And it means that VCs who are trying to deploy capital will, be, uh, will, will look askance if they say, I, if I build a company, I can't sell it to a consolidator in the sector anymore. So um, Jeremy, What's your take and, and do you see it staying the same or changing for the better or, or staying stuck where it is now? You know, it's a complicated question, Stephen. I think, um, you know, in general, uh, I don't worry too much about uh, the FTC or the government intervening in some of these uh, M&A acquisitions, um, uh, particularly in the, with respect to sort of how it's going to impact the, the venture community. The, uh, the concern where a lot of the, you know, a lot of the concern around the venture, uh, around the FTC intervening, these are, these are mega behemoths in respective industries. And, and, uh, these are usually companies that are already way beyond their venture, um, uh, window. And so, um, 
great examples. And there are other reasons to be positive and or negative about uh, government intervention around that. But uh, I'm I'm not of the camp where I worry about that affecting uh, um, the venture uh, uh, market itself. Um, I do think that you know the the venture world and the M and A world right now is kind of in an interesting space. The PE market in general uh, is still quite quiet, uh, um, you know, and so and the PE market, as you said, is sort of where private. You know, uh, where private companies generally have one exit, you could go public or you could go and buy and again be acquired by uh, uh, more of either by a uh, another player in the industry or through the PE uh, window and uh, by PE funds. And um, right now, PE funds, again, are dealing with existing portfolios. They're weary of taking on additional uh, uh, using uh, cash until they know that there's more cash available to their companies. So they're, you know, they're generally playing, uh, playing a pretty conservative right now. On the flip side, um, a lot of companies, you know, short of going bankrupt are looking for exits. So, you know, uh, the stress on a lot of companies who may not be able to persist the next 6, 12, 18 months until the markets open up are going to be forced to exit and hopefully not towards bankruptcy, but maybe towards an acquisition. And this gives uh, slightly healthier balance sheets, you know, generally also slightly bigger companies, the opportunity to uh, to acquire um, important uh, and high value, you know, companies and products that, uh, again, be, not because the products aren't good or the companies aren't good, but just because they got caught in, in the current storm, uh, um, you know, it'll give opportunities for them to to find a new home and for the companies that are buying them to, to, to benefit. So this is... Uh, there, there should be more of that. I would actually expect, I was surprised to not see so much of that the first half of the year, but I would expect as we're going towards the end of the year and certainly into the Q1 next year, that we're going to see uh, um, more uh, more acquisition taking place, actually. Good. So that, that that's optimistic and also making the point that I, I wasn't necessarily seeing that if the government is negative on acquisitions, then... It, it might just be, you know, very large, very large companies. So, you know, Activision Blizzard's a pretty large company. That's where the government stepped in. But if, if you're talking about a Series C, uh, you know, venture-backed company being sold to, to you know, Quintiles IMS, you know, the government probably doesn't care about that. So, yeah, I mean, they might, you know, they they were worried with Microsoft. They're worried about, wait a second, Activision, if, as soon as you move the, Actor is the largest player in the gaming industry. So, you know, if all of a sudden Microsoft, which now owns so much other aspects of the home and the and the workspace, now all of a sudden they own gaming, you 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 control a lot of key components. And you know, you see this again in a couple of different areas. I'm not saying I'm for or against it. Uh, it's just I could understand why you know it gives people pause. Um, but these are most of the acquisitions that we're talking about in the venture space. These fall way short of, uh, of those concerns. Interesting. So now we'll talk about conferences, even give a little mini review of conferences that are coming up and whether our audience who are people in the innovation economy should go to the conferences. So coming right, right up in Boston is DTX East. This is, to my mind, the best conference for executives in prescription digital therapeutics. In recent years, it's been primarily pharma innovation execs going, but VCs also go as well, um, and uh, young company leaders also go as well. Uh, and so uh, for, 
for this year, this is going to be an interesting year for, for DTX East um, because it's in the wake of these announcements by Pear and Achille. And just in general, I think there's been a lot of negativity around um, uh, reimbursement and also an issue called usability where digital therapies are slightly harder to use than pills. And then this causes different stakeholders to, to dislike them. Uh, uh, and so continued issues around, around those issues in with prescription digital therapeutics. And also I think VCs reflecting that being less interested, that making it hard for digital therapies companies to raise their next round. Uh, but if I were a CEO of a digital therapies company, I would probably go to this. Um, I'm actually not going this year. Uh, I've gone in past years, um, but I would go uh, to make contact with pharma innovation executives, hear about their agenda, connect with them, and also to meet with all the VCs that go. So Jeremy, any, any thoughts on this conference and are, are you going this year? And would you advise a, the CEO of a young digital therapeutics company to go this year? Uh, so I will be going not, not directly to the conference, but to a number of events to plan around the conference. It is a great conference. It's, um, it's broader. You know, I'd say this is, this is all about consumer health, digital health. Yes, DTX, digital therapeutics and prescription digital therapeutics, but it's a great convening, convener of, um, as you said, VCs, pharma innovators, et cetera. And so it's uh, still well worth, I'm attending a couple of events and uh, it's kind of still a who's who list of, of people. So do recommend it. Great. And then in the Boston area, so my friends at the Massachusetts eHealth Institute are running a challenge this year. This year's challenge is women's health. And so on September 26th, I think it's at the Mass State House, they are doing their women's health challenge launch. And then several months from now, they're going to come back around and give some awards uh, in in women's health to the to the young companies that are winners of this challenge. So uh, I, I would recommend any any women's health companies in New England uh, to head over to this. Um, you know, you can search Constant Contact, MEHI, MEHI, Massachusetts eHealth Institute Women's Health Challenge launch event, uh, and uh, you, you can find that. I think it's a free event. I think it's at the Mass State House. Um, so, uh, Jeremy, any, any thoughts on this? Uh, women's health is important and, uh, and it needs people's attention. So, uh, um, I don't know the event in particular, but, um, I, I, I'm excited for it. So also, uh, a, a portion of my audience is very excited about age tech. So coming up this fall, uh, I think that the conference to go to an age tech is aging 2.0 optimize conference. That's September 27th to 28th in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so Aging 2.0 is, a, is a, an industry association and this is their annual conference. Um, and I, I talked to them and they gave me a discount code for my audience of $75 discount off a ticket. So you can enter the code Wardell75 and get a, and get a discount off of their ticket. Um, so uh, Jeremy, any, any thoughts on the age tech sector? It's not the one that you've chosen, I think, uh, but uh, uh, any, any thoughts on age tech as a, as a part of digital health? Yeah, aging has been emerging. I mean, you know, longevity is a key topic, I think, for, you know, for anyone who's alive. And, uh, and we need to age more gracefully and, and, uh, and more healthfully. And so um, I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, we struggled, I think, on the, on the medication side, although we're, there's still some, you know, a lot of work being done there. I think it's interesting. I've got a couple of companies that I'm advising right now in, in the space. So I didn't know about this. I'm taking notes. So thank you. 
And, and this conference is a good one to meet with investors. Uh, so there's a number of investors that specialize in age tech or digital health investors uh, who um, invest in age tech companies. And so th this is a conference to go find out who they are in advance, write them, ask to meet them at the conference. So next is uh, Health Evolution Connect, September 27th, 29th in Nashville. So this is an interesting conference. And there's the Health Evolution Summit, same company. That summit is known to be very exclusive and it successfully gets actual top C-level executives of health systems and health plans to come. That's a very hard thing to do. This conference series pulls it off. They also make it exclusive and hard to get a ticket to if you are not yourself a senior executive of a health plan uh, or health system. Um, and I'm so as a result, it's it's valuable to be able to go um, if you sell into health plans and health systems. Um, this is a different conference from the same organization, Health Evolution Connect. I'm not sure if the same is true. Health Evolution Summit is typically in, in California. This one's in Nashville. Um, but this is an organization that has a track record of delivering senior senior level executives. The, the, there's a kind of an evolution of conferences in digital health where the hottest conference of 10 years ago are no longer getting senior executives to come to them. So the classic example of this is at HIMSS. It's harder than ever to actually meet a hospital CIO at HIMSS, even though HIMSS is entirely about hospital CIOs. Um, and so when when and so conferences, old conferences become stale, new conferences become hot, successfully get senior leaders to come. This is one that's reputed to actually get senior leaders, either the CEO or buyers, enterprise buyers of software to come. So, um, Jeremy, I don't know if, if, if you hear that reputation as well about Health Evolution and the Health Evolution Connect conference. Well, I, uh, it, I've never heard of it and probably because I'm not a C-suite in, uh, in a hospital or health system. So, uh, um. so with this conference, by the way, they make it hard to go if you don't actually work for a health plan or health system. And they also make um, vendors selling hard as well. So given that challenge, nevertheless, most of my friends would still be undaunted and want to try to go. <laughs> um, so then uh, so the next one is is the health conference. And so this is a really interesting conference. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it was it was um, co-founded by the people at Oak, uh, Jeremy, that you and I probably know, uh, with uh, Nancy Brown playing a significant role in their programming in early years, I think, and and, and Annie uh, Lamont, uh, you know, playing a very significant role. And I don't know if you know John Wiener, who is the CEO of it, but very impressed with health. And they have clearly put this in October in Las Vegas. Uh, all of my friends are talking about health. Most of my friends are going to health. They put it in, in at this time slot to compete directly with JP Morgan, which is second week of January in San Francisco. And the JP Morgan conference in the world of health innovation has taken some blows and it's not gonna be as attractive this year as it was in prior years. Um, and so my, my friends are planning to go and they're going for a couple things. First is that there's going to be heavy representation of VCs at this conference. So this is a conference where you can, um, where you can get meetings with VCs. Um, that's one issue. They're a little weak on uh, enterprise buyers. They have not been as good as getting you know, the, the, the enterprise software buyers from large enterprises in healthcare or the corp debt executives who are company buyers or partners. They've not been as good at getting those large company executives 
to come, but they're very strong at getting VCs to come. So that that's this conference. It's also fun and enjoyable. The programming is not as good today as it was when Nancy Brown was helping to write it a while back. I think they have made concessions to sponsors and therefore the content's a little more boring and reflects the sponsor's agenda uh, a little bit with this conference. Um, but I know people who are saying, I'm going to get my, the startup health people have canceled the festival that they put on it at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco in January and moved it to be at the health conference. Uh, so it's its own parallel track at the health conference. These are all good signs. I like this conference. I'm going. Um, I think you can accomplish an agenda of meeting investors you've only spoken to on Zoom before at this conference, meeting new investors at this conference, getting the word out about your company. Um, so, uh, and I think a lot of people will go to this conference, um, which is a pleasure to go to inside of a giant convention center in Las Vegas, um, instead of the JP Morgan conference uh, in January in San Francisco. Um, so, um, uh, and I'll just add, I'm actually doing a little project where I'm collecting uh, people's um, people's recommendations of the best parties, the best evening receptions to go to at Health um, for innovators. So if you know, uh, so if if you know of one, let's say the innovator number one innovator is the CEO of a young company, number two innovator is a VC. If you have recommendations of the best parties at Health, I think there's over ten parties a night at Health. So. If you have recommendations of the best ones, I'm collecting that and then I'll publish that. And so if, if you send me a recommendation, I'll send you the list. And if you ask me for um, the list, I'll send it to you. That's Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com, Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com. So Jeremy, any thoughts on, on the health conference? You know, this, you said it all. It's a great conference. Um I, uh, the only thing I, I, uh, would say a little bit differently is, is I think JP Morgan is and will remain, uh, an equally important, albeit very different conference. Uh, there's no conference in the world that is as transactional as JP Morgan. I don't think that's changing, uh, regardless of the state of San Francisco or the terrible weather that we tend to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I encourage everyone to go to both. That That's great. Um, and so any, any conferences you want to call out for the audience? Um, the only conference I would call out that's very near term is uh, Data Event, uh, Future of Health Data. Uh, it's an invitation only, so I'm a little bit uncomfortable. But if you get an invitation uh, or can get one for next year, this is, um, you know, you highlighted basically C-suite based conferences. This is a, uh, a small conference, um, usually 200, maybe 300 people at most. Uh, extraordinarily well attended by all the major players in the um, in the healthcare data industry. Um, uh, with because it's held in DC uh, on October third, it also gets a lot of the key uh, government officials, you know, from the FDA, uh, et cetera. So um, and uh, so it's a great almost who's who. You you can't turn in any direction without uh, being able to see someone that uh, if you don't know, you should know them. Uh, and have an important conversation. So great, great, great conference. Very interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard of this one and I'm going to look into it further. So th- thank you for that. Um, good. So the, the next is uh, personal notices. So this is uh, if we're if we're out doing activities, we want to let, let the audience know about it. So in my case, my, my personal notices are 
Um, I'm hosting a drinks night uh, tomorrow in Boston at the Liberty Hotel. So this is 530 to 830. Um, and the topic is uh, you know, what does a, what does a 21st century health care delivery network look like is the topic of the evening. Um, and so come, you can sign up, you can visit my Eventbrite page, register. It's stephenwardell.eventbrite.com uh, and, uh, and come to our drinks night uh, and we'll meet and we'll, we'll talk shop about industry and that sort of thing uh, tomorrow, Thursday uh, in Boston. Um, and then also my next show is coming up next week, next Wednesday, and that's with Liz Quo, uh, who is a digital health executive with experience selling into payers. And we're doing a show on selling into payers in 2023 and 2024 um, next week. So, uh, and Jeremy, uh, do you have any personal notices for our audience? No, no, nothing specific with only uh, one question, one uh uh, if we're, I'm in the process of hopefully launching and building uh, a number of companies in the generative AI space. Uh, if you are a senior gen AI engineer, please uh, find me on LinkedIn or send me an email to jeremy at p74ventures.com. Uh, no immediate promises on, on employment, but uh, we're looking for, for senior engineers in the space. That, that's great to hear. Thank you. So now um, we're going to move on to the main topic of the show, which is what's hot in PharmaTech. Um, and for our audience, feel free to ask questions um, in uh, in the chat room. Uh, type us some questions, and we'll we will respond to those. Um, but why why don't we begin by just saying what is uh, PharmaTech, um, and how is it different from say digital health? Or um, you know, I've, I've, there's also um, uh, there's sort of uh, bio software or, or other things like that. So how do you define pharma tech? Yeah, no, great question. So um, yeah, a lot of people call, we're, we're, we're trying to actually coin the term pharma tech, although there are obviously two terms that are, are well known or used independently. Pharma tech for us is, is if you look at the core functions of the pharmaceutical industry or the biotech industry, for that matter, uh, you have research and development. So you have drug discovery, you've got clinical trials, you've got commercial, and then you have a bunch of enabling functions that drive those uh, drive those uh, uh, um, core uh, services. So, you know, IT, data uh, and analytics, uh, procurement, manufacturing, HR, et cetera. Um, these are the core functions of a business, of any, really of any industry you know, from research to, you know, discovery to, you know, commercial, and then all those enabling functions. Technology is critical to drive those core functions. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, um, as innovative as it is, uh, and has been on around the drug itself, uh, I would argue it has lagged in terms of its investments around how do I do you know research and discovery more uh, efficiently? How do I run clinical trials more efficiently? How do I run uh, and reimagine my commercial model more effectively? And so we're investing in those core, you know, platform technologies that drive these these uh, these core functions, these these value drivers. Um, and so that's what it is. It's tech for pharma. Um, it's it is differentiated from tech bio. Tech bio, you know, that it emerged uh, a term that emerged maybe eighteen months or so ago, which is you know how do I use that's more AI driven drug discovery. Um, I consider those to be equivalent. Pharma tech or you know tech bio is a component of pharma tech, but it's just you know tech bio tends to focus mostly on that drug discovery 
uh, uh, vertical, not on the full value chain. Um, digital health is more on the other side, where digital health tends to be consumer facing. It, it, it tends to be uh, uh, it can be for pharma, but it doesn't have to be for pharma. And so um, uh, our key thesis around our fund, and it doesn't mean to the negative on, on digital health more broadly, but what we're focused, we believe that um, uh, you follow the money in healthcare. And uh, although it's never easy to sell into pharma, uh, those are some of the deepest and uh, most meaningful you know, pockets in, in all of healthcare. And so um, we we like that space. And so we will invest in digital health. We want pharma to be a major driver uh, uh, and, uh, you know, revenue generator for for those companies. So hopefully that helps uh, platform technologies and pharma. Uh, That's great. So uh, with that sort of table laid, what do you think are some of the big pain points in pharma that can be addressed by software and tech and data and technology. You know, I, I referenced this before. So on the tech on the on the pain points, right? So you know, I think most of us are aware that that are aware that uh, there's tremendous pricing pressure. You know, so the IRA and this ha- was happening before the IRA. We had five years again of declining prices uh, uh, in uh, on drug prices. Um, the IRA is only going to accelerate and put more pressure. Um, Again, I'm not going to talk whether I'm for the IRA or against the IRA, but the IRA exists today. And so that is changing the way that pharmaceutical companies need to operate. We need to be thinking about, like, how do I maximize the utility and the value of a branded product in a shorter time frame uh, and, um, and potentially at lower costs? And so that means that we have to bring drugs to market, um, again, faster hopefully more cost effectively. And we need to be thoughtful about not sort of this like, you know, slow curve towards adoption uh, where it usually takes somewhere between three and five years to really get to mainstream adoption and actually five to seven years to mainstream, three to five years to begin to see sort of real adoption. We need to do that earlier. We need to be much more effective in year one and year two in terms of how we commercialize and educate, you know, HCPs and physicians. So technology is key. I mean, the way that, uh, um, uh, HCPs that healthcare professionals learn about new drugs is, uh, is in not just through, you know, pharma salespeople anymore. It's got to be through multiple other uh, modalities. Uh, the way that patients learn, it can't just be through, you know, one in the morning, uh, direct to consumer advertisements or, or bus, uh, uh, ads. You know, it needs to be, we need to be thinking about where are these consumers, whether they're healthcare professionals or individuals, where are they, uh, engaged, uh, where, where do they spend their time when, when they're looking for things, how do we make it easier for them to, to learn? So lots and lots of opportunity. Um, you know, we're, we're technology. We see the lowest hanging fruit. You know, again, you have a big value chain, uh, a few areas where we're particularly focused. We, um, we think that clinical trials, there's been a lot of great innovation, uh, in that space for the last 10 years. We're not negative on the space, but we think that that's a harder space to differentiate these days. Uh, obviously, AI-driven drug discovery is exciting, uh, really, really hard, really, really complicated. Uh, um, there are going to be many winners, uh, but I'm not sure it's going to be easy. And so um, we will do a few things there. Uh, we see the biggest opportunity actually in commercial and in these enabling functions. Um, on the commercial side, the commercial playbook has not changed in 30 years. 
Field force, field force, field force. Samples, field force, right? Uh, supported by the medical organization, that, um, that needs to change. We need to arm our field force and our medical organization more effectively. We need to create more content. We need to engage and educate more effectively. We need to think about other channels. Uh, and we need to understand, again, like, how do we gain adoption for these best-in-class drugs? Uh, and all of that can happen using technology and, and novel business model. Um, so we like that. And we also, again, you know, areas of, you know, significant inefficiency. Manufacturing sites are generally 20 to 30, maybe 40 percent uh, efficient. Uh, supply chain, uh, again, lots of good work that's been done there over the last couple of years, but a lot more work. We know we saw this in cold chain. Cold chain does not exist across the globe. Right. We need to make sure that we're protecting our biologics so that we don't lose these drugs. And when they get in the hands of, of, of physicians and patients. Uh, so. Those are just a few few areas to quickly highlight. That, that's great. And, and so the Inflation Reduction Act, what that did is that formerly CMS was not allowed to negotiate uh, pharma drug prices down, but now it is. Is that the big change or is it is it beyond that? Yeah, so you, you highlighted it nice and thank you. It's, it is the IRA is the Inflation Reduction Act that gives the government now the ability to begin to um, particularly Medicare, the ability to negotiate on price uh, after a certain number of years. There's a difference between the number of years, and don't quote me on this, I think it's eight years for uh, small molecules for pills and, and 11 years for uh, biologics. Uh, and um, and what that means is, is that your window before Medicare, you know, which is one of the largest purchasers of drugs, uh, hopefully for obvious reasons, uh, begins to negotiate on price. And so that window... Uh, where you used to have 12 to 15 years, now you know that somewhere between 8 and 11 years, you're now going to get some pretty substantial pricing pressure. So you have to, again, operate really, really effectively during those first uh, eight years at a minimum to be able to hit your peak window, um, you know, billion dollar plus, you know, target revenue uh, adoption. After that, you're going to start not just hitting a, a plateau, but actually more than likely a decline unless you somehow can can grow faster than your reduction in price. That's going to be a challenge. So, um, you know, how do we do that and while maintaining margins and growth is uh, is weighing on the minds of of everyone. Um, uh, it's being contested by a lot of pharma companies. We'll see where it ends up. Uh, again, not getting into the politics of whether you like it or not, but it's a reality. Uh, um, and so. What we'll see as a result of the IRA, because there's that differential between small molecules, again, pills and biologics, uh, usually injections and or infusions, is that um, there will likely be and is already, you know, or we're already seeing this, a shift by pharma companies to focusing on biologics instead of small molecules. Uh, um, it. It's a shame because, you know, what drug companies should focus on is, is what's the highest efficacious drug, the one that's easiest to, and the one that may be easiest to use, as opposed to trying to game the economic uh, environment. And so um, uh, we'll see how that plays out. But uh, I, you know, I think there's good reason to believe that we will see uh, um, almost a flip. You know, so roughly most pipeline farm, big company, pharma company pipelines are 70 percent uh, small molecules and 30 percent. Uh, biologics, I, I would imagine over the next five to, to you know, plus years, we're going to see that flip uh, dramatically. So we have, we have some questions from our audience. Um, one is Michael Donaldson uh, asks, 
how are pharma companies evaluating all the new startups and tech companies offering clinical trial software to make clinical trials more efficient? Are they using multiple vendors via pilots to see who generates more ROI? Um, so how are, how are pharma companies, there's many startups in clinical trial software and, and are pharma systematically evaluating these companies that, that, that you know of or how do they choose who to commit with? Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, the first wave of innovation that happened in pharma, uh, I don't know if I was on the first wave or the first one and a half wave, but I spent a lot of my early time uh, in pharma uh, exactly in this space. It was around clinical trial innovation. That area of the of the business is pretty mature. Um, uh, we are still looking, the pharmaceutical industry is still very much looking to continue to evolve and innovate and, again, you know, bring drugs to market better, faster, and cheaper. I would at the same time say that you have to be a little bit cautious. Like these are complicated workflows. There are established uh, institutional vendor and vendor partner relationships here. And so uh, it is not easy. Uh, a lot of the uh, innovation teams that used to exist inside pharma have been uh, highly reduced. Their budgets have been slashed and, uh, um, you know, or they've been eliminated. So like the entry points where you can sort of get around procurement or, or uh, you know, innovate around uh, some of the established uh, uh, um, players is, is a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit harder. So, you know, you used to be able to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm focused on diversity or I'm focused on uh, using a mobile application or I'm focused on, you know, some new tool. Uh, it's a little bit harder to do that these days. Um, it's still possible. There's still a lot of work to be done. Don't get me wrong, but uh, um, uh, it's not easy, particularly, again, around clinical trial innovation. So, but by the way, I'm, I'm reacting to what I'm hearing you talk about. And I think that there is a perception if you are, um, you know, laboring away in the vineyards of health IT selling to the hospital CIO budget, or, or you're, you're trying to sell, uh, you know, uh, claims management software to payers, there's a perception that pharma software buyers are rich and spendy. Um, and what I'm hearing from you <laughs> is that, uh, there's pricing pressure, there's a patent cliff, and that innovation budgets are getting cut. Uh, and so is that, uh, so is that, um, is, is it a tougher environment, say, the last two years in far, for software companies that want to sell software into pharma than, than before? So I think it's a tale of two truths, right? So both things can be true and, 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 and in many respects, you know, contradict at the same time. So, it is harder to sell into pharma than it was before, uh, but at the same time, if you find the right problem space and with the right solution, pharma has very, very deep pockets, uh, and uh, and and they're willing to, in some cases, experiment, and you scale really, really nicely. And pharma tends to be fast followers, so once you sort of land, you can expand both horizontally inside an organization and horizontally into other into other pharma companies. The key thing is breaking that first seal. Uh, that's the hard part. So um, the, once you're in, once you're in that ecosystem and you show some momentum and some leadership, it's um, it's not always easy, but it's certainly then, you know, the, the momentum, you know, becomes a, a nice uh, cascade. Um, yeah, I think, again, inside all of healthcare, I much prefer, I'm not saying those others are bad, but I much prefer selling into pharma because 
60%, give or take, call it 40 to 60% on the low end, uh, of profits generated in healthcare end up in pharmaceutical companies' coffers, right? Now it's about 14 to maybe 19% of healthcare spend and yet 40 to 60% of profits concentrated in about 20 to 25 major pharma companies. I like those numbers any day, right? Selling into low margin insurance companies, payers, hospitals, you know, consumers, there's really good businesses there. Uh, it's just, I think in my experience has been, my personal experience has been, it's easier to sell into pharma. So we have a question from Willie, which is uh, anything new and interesting in ECOA DCT? I'm actually not sure what that is. Uh, Someone must know my background. I love, you know, ECOA. I love DC. ECOA stands for, you know, electronic. Uh, uh, um, basically, it's PRO, but for on the on the clinical side, um, uh, patient reported outcomes. This is clinical uh, uh, outcomes assessments, um, uh, and DCT is decentralized clinical trials. Um, I think, you know, the uh, I haven't seen a lot of innovation on the, you know, on the EPRO and the ECOA side, um, but I also ha I've taken my eye off the ball. So I don't want to say that there's not uh, uh, a lot going on there. DCT, you know, what we're seeing there is, is actually, I think, a, mat a maturation. So a lot of people are questioning uh, the DCT space uh, and some of the big players there. Um, you know, don't look at public markets and public you know, prices and say that the, that this is a problem of the idea or or the solution or those companies. This is simply SPACs got killed uh, and there's a maturation of the technology and the approach. And a lot of the big incumbents have integrated the best of DCT into their solutions. So DCT is here to stay. It'll only get better. Uh, um, I think it is harder to differentiate in that space. And so um, I would caution you if your next the next best ECT, um, I think there's still a huge market. There's still room to, to do that well, but um, I think it's going to be hard from a venture uh, investor perspective. And another question from Nafe is, being more difficult now, what is the new route to get new clinical trial software to pharma? Uh, you know, the, the, the new, I don't know if it's a new route. I think it's the same old route, which is, is understand your problem space, understand the solution, connect it to value. Value is not your value. Value is value to the pharma, to your customer. Make sure you understand who your buyers are uh, and who has money and just go at it. You know, stay, you know, uh, listen to, you know, be aggressive um, don't be fixated on one path because, you know, that what I've learned about pharma companies and my colleagues at Novartis used to not like when I say this, but the wonderful thing about pharma companies is, is it, it's like a house of Swiss cheese. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of holes. So like lots of places where you could crawl in and find a home and find your, your way back into, you know, another place that you couldn't get into before. So, um, knock on the door. Try that. As soon as you get, you know, no or no response, go find the next door and, and the next door and then the next door. Uh, um, just keep trying. At some point, listen to the feedback. Oh, not always listen to the feedback. Figure out what's resonating, what's not. Evolve your messaging, evolve your solution. But if you are connected to value, and what a lot of people don't understand is that sometimes you think you're connected to value um, and you're not, right? Like everything that you're learning suggests that there is a solution here and yet it just won't happen. Because, you know, I started a company many years ago around ECOA and it was all around uh, an EPRO and it was all around patient engagement. We said, hey, if we solve 
if we can develop the best patient engagement solution for clinical trials, um, for people, participants in clinical trials, this is a no-brainer because it solves uh, adherence, it solves compliance, it solves dropout. Like this could, you could reduce the size of your clinical trials by, you know, 30% or more, et cetera. Uh, your data will look better. And the reality is, is, is it was really hard. Pharma really, for the most part, didn't care. Um, because those assumptions, while true, were not actionable. There was no one in a pharma company who's going to reduce their clinical trial by 30% because we actually statistically got better data. They just weren't going to, like, they weren't going to do that. So on paper, it made a lot of sense, but like the reality was is no decision maker was going to do that, let alone the fact that there was no budget line for patient engagement in clinical trial. So we were like, hey, we got this great solution, but where's, where's the budget come from? So understand deeply who you're selling into and what your value proposition is. So uh, another question from Jagruti uh, is about change management. So one of the challenges with pharma tech innovation is ongoing use and internal change management. Um, the org structure in most cases makes it a challenge for sustaining innovation. What are your thoughts on change management needed? I guess this is if you, you, have, you have to sell into pharma, but then to get it used and implemented and have it be successful and create value, you need to, you, as an outside vendor, you need to help change, you know, change the way farmers are operating, which sounds, uh, you know, that doesn't sound easy. It's to, uh, listen, uh, the hardest part of selling into any industry and any large company is change. Uh, you know, the, you know, particularly in organizations where people have been there for life, you know, and, um, you know, more often than not, again, you're not necessarily deemed for taking, you are not incentivized and motivated to take risks. You're incentivized and motivated not to make mistakes. And, uh, and so that's hard, right? Um, uh, that said, again, what you have to find is, is the coalition of the willing. You got to figure out like which pharma companies are in the mindset or which division or group of people inside, you know, the, the, the company that you're trying to sell into is going to support you. If they're not in that place, for whatever reason, the company has particular market pressure. You can see it. You know, you can see which pharma companies are under a lot of pressure right now. Don't waste your time. Uh, there are really good pharma companies that, you know, for 18, 18 to 24 months, you might as well not at all engage because the market is selling them that they need to focus on top line growth and bottom line, you know, uh, margins and not take risks and deliver, deliver, deliver. And so like innovation is not going to be a priority for almost everyone in that organization. You may have people with titles whose name is innovation, uh, but I can almost guarantee you it'll be a very low risk sale. Go focus on, on the other companies that are. I was surprised really. Japanese pharmaceutical companies 10 years ago were very slow uh, to adopt innovation as being, you know, a key area of interest. Now almost, you know, of the major pharma companies, the, you know, the Osakas, the Takedas, the Acelsis of the world are, you know, uh, are the ones that are at least ostensibly, you know, talking, you know, the biggest game. Uh, um, Again, that's not to say that you won't see that in Merck or Novartis or Pfizer, but um, uh, um, find out, again, where there's a belief in what you are doing. And if there's a belief in what you're doing, you know, go for it. So uh, I think uh, an intriguing topic that you've raised, uh, Jeremy, is R&D efficiency. So what, what does that mean? How can we get more, uh, more efficient R&D and how, how does software help us get there? 
<laughs> you know, I loved it. So R&D efficiency is, is the most important thing for pharma companies with maybe the, the other exception of launch efficiency. I'd probably say launch efficiency is even more important because at that point, your market price is set around, will you meet expectations? And everything's about expectations. And so um, launch efficiency is probably more important. R&D efficiency at the same time is sort of highly connected because, you know, you got choices to, you know, between am I going to choose of these 10,000, you know, uh, potential candidates, which ones are going to carry forward into my preclinical and which ones to go from preclinical to go to clinical and, and so on upstream. Um, AI for, you know, AI driven drug discovery uh, holds the promise of um allowing us to choose, if I think about that, that process, maybe improving my probability of success. Everyone in pharma should know POS is, is what drives a lot of strategy and killer metrics. If I can move my probability of success uh, from, let's say, 3% to 5% or 5% to 7%, that is a game changer. Um, problem is with AI-driven drug discoveries is we may think we may get faster to a set of recommendations or choices, but we won't know for seven to 10 years, maybe even longer. We won't know across more than one asset if we're right, right? And it'll be really hard to attribute it. So um, I think it holds huge promise. It'll solve a lot of unknowns in, in terms of like driving us towards better insights and confidence around our assets, but I'm not sure we'll be able to say, hmm, that's absolutely what, you know, increased our overall efficiency. Efficiency, short term is going to just come from like basic blocking and tackling. How could I, again, you know, take on fewer projects, kill, you know, uh, uh, more projects earlier on, um, hopefully reduce my total cost of my clinical trials, and ideally, again, get to market in those early days. The, the success of a drug is generally defined in the first six to 18 months of its launch. Uh, and most pharma companies are not good in those first six to 18 months. And so that is mission critical. You got to have launch efficiency. So something very topical to our audience is this idea of AI. Uh, and in the last year, generative AI. Um, and so uh, I have heard of AI use in pharma around drug discovery. I've also heard of AI use in the form of next best decision, which is that there's all kinds of professionals, a sales professional, customer service professional, R&D professional, where their expert system pops up with an answer to their next question, suggested answer to their next question based on interpreting data. Uh, and so that, that, that's the next best decision um, kind of uh, uh, AI. Um, doesn't necessarily need generative AI for that. Um, where do you see AI, whether it's generative AI, generative AI people are talking about right now, or computer vision AI, or or um, drug discovery AI? Where do you see that uh, impacting pharma the most? Where, where's the opportunity? Yeah, so, so two quick comments. So, you know, Gen AI is, is all the, 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 the rage these days in terms of sort of the, the name that we use. Um, I don't really care whether it's Gen AI, AI, or actually rules-based engines, right? But let's, you know, I'm, we shouldn't over-index on the underlying technology. What we should, what we should over-index on is, is, is this a problem space I like? Is this the right solution? Whatever's driving that, that solution. 
And then, you know, do I have right the right sort of economics, the buyers, the price points, the margins, et cetera? Um, I do believe sincerely that, you know, AI and Gen AI and, and again, rules-based engines, listen, we've been doing that. You know, I look at the 26 investments I've done in the last, you know, uh, eight, nine years. Um, they're almost all AI and Gen AI, right? We just didn't call it Gen AI. We called it, you know, in many cases, we didn't even call it AI because, you know, it was, oh, I want to solve this problem. Um, you know, uh, Gen AI is just the craze. Um, in most cases, by the way, it's not even the Gen AI. There's no generative component of it. It's 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 just AI. It's just you know, in, or or machine learning or neural networks. And you know, again, these are you know more ter- you know, specific terminology around it. Um, but uh, I think there are a lot of important areas in pharma where Gen AI and AI are going to be hugely useful. Uh, I'm I'm looking at a supply chain optimization company. Like, how do I again? If I'm moving, you know millions of units of product globally from, you know, oftentimes three or four different manufacturing sites to tens of thousands of different locations across the globe. How do I do that uh, more efficiently? Lower cost, on time, reliability, uh, uh, lower carbon footprint, Um, lots and lots of variables to account for. AI is going to help me make decisions around who do I use, when do I use, how do I switch, how do I avoid a a high-risk situation that just emerged, you know, et cetera. Same thing for next best action that you mentioned around Salesforce and field force optimization, medical optimization. Um, you know, who should I meet? When should I meet them? What should I say to them? What medium should I, I use? Uh, and how should I follow up? Gen AI and AI is going to be hugely important and has been for, for many years. Uh, medical uh, agency, you know, how do I, or even just engagement, communication in a, omni-channel, multi-channel world in which we live, where we spend, you know, lots of times in some places, but, you know, modest amounts of times in many other places, uh, I need to reach those individuals in all those different places, or I should want to reach them in all those different places. And again, how do I serve the right content in the right, I call it dynamic, personalized, and contextually relevant. Right now, we don't have the, A, the marketing efficiency and agency and content creation capabilities to even create the content. B, I don't know, I don't have the intelligence to be able to serve it up uh, or see the, the channels in which to do that. Huge opportunities around AI and Gen AI to do that. Um, people have been talking, and I'll go back to the clinical trial space, AI and Gen AI, I'm a little less bullish on this, but you know, for sure we could be identifying patients and selecting them uh, for clinical trials in a much more efficient way. A uh, lot of room uh, 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 there. Um, there have been companies in that space have been using AI uh, around that. Um, candidly, this problem that, from my perspective, that I've experienced around clinical trial recruitment is not finding the right patient. It's usually around connecting that right patient to the right site at the right time. Uh, and uh, that's just really hard. And getting the physician to sort of step out of the way. Um, and, uh, and so there's an endless number of applications where AI and Gen AI uh, will be hugely valuable. And that's the reason why our fund exists. Um. So a question from, um, from Daniel, in these 26 investments, almost all involving AI, did you ever encounter regulatory challenges in terms of approval with the FDA, the intended purpose, marketing claims, et cetera? Let me just uh, jump in there. I heard the FDA before the pandemic, they said about AI, they said, we don't want to um, to block AI, but we do think that when AI is used in an FDA approved context, it should be explainable when, when, when AI makes a decision. Um, 
And then I look at, interestingly, a couple of years later, we had this generative AI boom. I look at generative AI and I say, hey, generative AI hallucinates, it gets things wrong, and it's not explainable. And so I think that that's an intriguing um, problem with generative AI when applied to healthcare. But anyway, so you, you, I don't know if you can see Daniel's uh, question about your 26 investments. If you could respond to that, please. Um, yeah, you know, so I, I love your example. And I, I'm, 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 let me use a very simple example. We all use calculators and computers to do mathematical equations and, and complex mathematical equations. And, and yet I don't, you know, demand that I actually understand how the computer or the calculator is actually doing the complex, you know, uh, I just see the output and I know the output is right. Uh, and I know the output is right in some cases because there's only one answer, correct answer. But in other cases, it's because it's validated or verified. You know, the early days of Gen AI, you know, it was doing exactly what it was intended to do. It was basically creating information and content. Uh, now, we wanted it to give us truth, right? We were basically saying like, but that's not what it was designed to do. What it was designed to do is, is to create novel content, you know, based on some fact and based on the information, the, you know, whatever information could be limited, could be extensive information that it had. It said, create something new within these constraints uh, and, and guess at what the next word should be, right? In order. And so like, that's what it's doing. So it was obvious that it was going to hallucinate. Um, you know, obviously we're doing more and more to say like, don't hallucinate, use Gen AI to be creative in terms of pulling factual information and, and assimilating that into, you know, prose or whatever. But, you know, we need to put the right constraints and we need to validate it. But so from my perspective, it's not about being able to look under the cover and say like, oh, I could somehow see how this machine learning or neural network is actually, you know, working. And it's more about like, all right, do I have I created enough evidence to be able to show that the output is of the quality that I expect and um, and based on a specific set of use cases. And I think we could do that. Uh, now, the, I, you know, the challenge for, from my perspective is because is I want to be hugely complimentary to the regulatory agencies and I also want to put a challenge to the regulatory agencies. In my experience in, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, is, is the regulatory agencies oftentimes appropriately step aside and let the markets evolve, which I think is amazing. I equally am and have been frustrated by the speed in which the agencies don't remove obstacles. You know, six months ago, right around the time we started, tried to do this, this uh, podcast last, the agency came out with the guidelines around decentralized clinical trials. And they came out with what is, excuse me for saying this, one of the most ridiculous, you know, uh, rules that said that a decentralized clinical trial should still have a single site where the data resides. This defeats the whole point of some, not all, but of some decentralized clinical trials. And by the way, what does that mean? A physical site where the data resides. The data at that site, if there is a site, we can certainly say there's a physical site, the data is going to reside in the cloud. Where's what, what is the point of a physical site? The data is not even there. So like if the point is, is that I need, again, to verify the data, the veracity of the data. I need to be able to have real-time access to the data. I need to have my 21 CFR, you know, part of the I can do all those things and still have it in the cloud and not have a physical site. So the agency needs to educate itself. And if they can't be educated by themselves, they need to get that intelligence and they need to allow a certain room for risk. And, um, and it can't happen again. Ten, we knew how to run clinical trial. I don't need a guideline to run a decentralized clinical trial. I've been doing that for 10 years. I, same thing, I know how to do ECOA. I know how to do EPRO. I know how to use AI. So like, 
step in in a more efficient way, be willing to say I was wrong, make changes. We as, you know, as the industry shouldn't, you know, we should, we should have a regulatory set of guidelines that says like, all right, we're going to try something until we know and learn definitively that this was dangerous and wrong. And we're going to quickly say, sorry, we were wrong and make the change. So I am, um, I, I'm complimentary of the regulatory agencies and, and also say like we could be doing better. Digital therapeutics, prescription digital therapeutics, put prescription digital therapeutics, not in med devices, but under drugs. It is a drug. It is not a device. It is a drug. We run clinical trials as drugs. We, you know, it should be approved as drugs. It should be reimbursed as a drug. What are we doing? Like it's in no man's land. Kudos to the agency to actually have leaned in early to create a pathway. It put the wrong pathway. Now change it, correct it. We learn from our mistakes, right? AI to actually create, in, you know, uh, um, intelligent dosing models. Like we can do these things, you know, and patients will benefit. We can change the trajectory of healthcare in meaningful ways, right? By the way, probably in better ways short term than even introducing new drugs if we actually could play around with a few uh, with intelligent dosing. You know, we assume a non-existent human being, like that all human beings are the same, right? And so, but we all know that a small person is different than a large person. A person of one race may be a different than another person of another race, right? So like, let's figure out intelligent dosing models that work. We have no pathway for intelligent dosing models, zero. We should be doing better. So an AI is at the cusp, uh, is core, getting comfortable with AI is core. And if I have to explain how the AI algorithm, you know, worked, no, just run the trial. You know, let's let's be able to create an, an intelligent dosing model, like a variable dosing model, and be able to run a clinical trial. We need a way to be able to run a clinical trial to be able to, to do that. So much power. We'd be doing so much more for patients if we if we solve some of these very simple regulatory challenges. So, uh, sorry, I, I got on my, my soapbox there, but uh, exciting times. That, that's great. And so for our audience, if you guys have any last questions, feel free to ask them in the room chat. Uh, and, you know, Jeremy, just then you brought up digital therapeutics, prescription digital therapeutics. Uh, can you tell us how you see digital therapeutics evolving uh, in the future? So we're currently, you know, the, the, sec the sector's probably had three booms and three busts. In, by my count, since 2015, we're probably in the worst bust for the sector right now. Um, and what do you see as the future of digital therapeutics? Is this pharma tech or is this a different category than pharma tech because it's kind of a, pro a pharma product? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and you just in, in general, uh, do you, you know, do you see some hit products emerging from digital therapeutics in, in, in the near future? Yeah, I, I think digital therapeutics are here to stay. I do think we still have a lot of work to work on in terms of the reimbursement model. Uh, I hope the reimbursement model will evolve and change and make it uh, uh, more interesting for pharma companies to lean in, for you know healthcare companies to lean in. Um, it is a place that we will uh, we will invest in. Uh, again, the the challenge on it from an investor perspective is just just believing enough in some of these you know in some of these changes. Um, but. Uh, uh, I think we, it's, the, it's the most important way to do right by uh, do right by patients is this is an important modality. It's not the only modality, but it's a hugely important modality that uh, uh, that we know works. Uh, we, you know, the evidence is, is almost self-evident. And, and so finally, um, 
just any thoughts on the future business model of pharma? Um, is pharma still going to be selling pills primarily in, uh, uh, you know, in 10 years? <laughs> pharma will absolutely still be selling pills uh, and or biologics. Uh, I hope actually that, again, if we solve, you know, listen, it makes perfect sense to me that pharma companies should focus on, you know, on, uh, on its core business model, which is this billion dollar products uh, with high margins. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that that makes sense. Like they have choices. Now there may be other sort of smaller pharma companies that, that fill the gap and say like, wait a second. I, it's very, you know, I could be a really strong, highly profitable business and, and focus on that sort of like second tier, uh, uh, of drugs that drive 250 to $500 million. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I do think that there are a lot of pharma companies that are, you know, challenging themselves to say, Hey, um, you know, we were a little bit early in the wave, you know, around, you know, call it the next generation of therapeutics, um, uh, uh, you know, like Sanofi as an example, um, you know, who was really, you know, uh, extraordinarily forward thinking and trying to think about how do we solve diabetes in a more meaningful, in a more holistic way. I hope those kinds of trends, you know, continue. Again, you're seeing this, I mentioned, made reference to the, um, to the Japanese, you know, pharma companies, Otsuka, Takeda, you know, Stellis, they're all deeply Pfizer. Uh, I hope they stay on that path. Um, we have work to do. Uh, um, you know, sometimes, by the way, I've learned the hard way uh, um, that uh, sometimes wave one doesn't work and wave two and wave three are even better. And that's, that's just, that's how we innovators, uh, that's just the life for innovators and, and investors. And um, if we don't make money the first time, we'll, we'll and and and, uh, and hopefully have success and impact. Hopefully, uh, we'll do it the second or third time. So, by the way, just to dig a little deeper in into that idea. So, um, pharma loves selling pills, ideally on patent pills, high margin. That's a great business model. Um, but if you were to go beyond the pill, what would that look like? So, one version of that's the European version where you're selling successful outcomes, you're selling success. And so, uh, you know, if someone um, doesn't respond to the drug, then the buyer doesn't pay for the drug. Uh, or if someone, you know, ha weighs more, is bigger, weighs more and needs two pills, they only get paid for one successful outcome, not for two pills. So that, that's an interesting model. I think in the US, the industry is fighting that. They don't want to see that, um, uh, uh, but it, it's an intriguing model. Another version of that is that you um, is that pharma, of course, doesn't control the patient and doesn't provide care and doesn't control the patient. And so another version of that is trying to get into this business of helping the patient be adherent to the drugs or or do other things around care. Like if if you if you have diabetes, it could be fitness. Somehow promoting that, adding things with the pill, uh, going beyond the pill, selling products with the pill to help touch care and patient behavior and adherence and that sort of thing. So th those are, when, when I hear the phrase beyond the, the future business model of pharma, um, those are two ideas. I think pharma doesn't naturally want to do either of those, but could be forced to do that by the government or by payers who want to pay for success and not pay for pills, for example. Do you see pharma moving in that direction to, or are there other business models that pharma may um, may uh, adopt in addition to those two scenarios that I that I laid out. 
Yeah. You know, listen, I, I, I came from pharma um, and at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm both supportive and critical. Uh, you know, I was at Novartis. Novartis was one of the, 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 the first, you know, big pharma companies that truly leaned into value-based and performance-based, um, you know, pricing models. Um, uh, I don't think pharma is against it as much as, as it just doesn't work. Uh, and it doesn't work because uh, a lot of the friction points are outside of their control. And so, you know, if I offer a product and it says use, you know, use it with these instructions and then you, you know, you break the product because you, you know, you, I don't know, you didn't use it per the instructions. Like, why should I, you know, have to, you know, give you a new version of that product? That just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of other components for which we are, you know, you're, as individuals, we don't take full responsibility. The insurance companies don't necessarily, you know, have the same aligned interests. The, the uh, um, healthcare professionals don't have the same interests. I'll give you a, 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 a really, you know, I don't know, an example I was thinking about just uh, um, I'm working on separately. Um, we're looking at uh, a particular issue for women's health. And what we're seeing is, is we're seeing that um, certain physicians are prescribed. I'm not going to be specific because you know, I don't want to insult anyone. But we're looking at uh, a women's health issue and, and uh, um, certain physicians are prescribing, you know, therapeutic area or intervention A because that's how they get paid. The, the potentially better therapeutic interventional is something that they can't actually do. It's, it's, uh, it's not for that particular specialty. It's for another specialty. And so um, they never they don't have an interest in actually suggesting, you know, uh, option B. Uh, and so they just don't. Right. So. You know, there are a whole bunch of incentives that you have to understand the full incentive structure. That's why I would say understand the flow of money as well as the workflow. And um, it, it's much more complicated than simply saying pharma companies do or don't or, you know, et cetera. Right now, the system just doesn't work. Right. Uh, um, you know, and the data didn't work like we had no way of actually, you know, perform. There are many cases where you could say performance based models should are, are obvious, but. I don't have the data. Pharma companies never see the data. So how do I know, you know, or we never collect that data. That endpoint may be something that we collect six months or 12 months or whatever. Like this, you have to be thoughtful around um, uh, like how the system works, which means, by the way, this doesn't mean we take that for granted. Maybe we need to change the system. But um, it's always a little bit more complicated than uh, 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 than we when we want it to be. Um, but you know, this is what we do. Like we're innovators. We we challenge the system. We create better solutions, and we we hopefully drive for change. And and uh, I love that. So like, continue doing it. Like we we have to not take no for an answer. Uh, but um, but we also need to be realistic. You know where the headwinds are. So that so uh, thank you so much. Is there anything else? Any other sort of summary or general message you have for our audience about about pharmatech and and the future of pharmatech? Uh, you know, first of all, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. These are great questions. Thank you, everyone who stayed on. Uh, um, if you have ideas, if you disagree with anything I said, you know, send me an email. Uh, I love to engage. Uh, if you have companies that you want to talk about, uh, um, if you have money to invest in a fund, even better. Um, and uh, just continue doing the great things that you do. This is a community of um, amazing people and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of it and to learn from you all. So thank you. Great, well, thank you for being on our show. Um, uh, so you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Uh, our thanks to our guest, Jeremy Sohn. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, and our next show is Wednesday, September 27th, 4 to 5.30. The topic is selling into payers in 2023 to 24 with Liz Quo. And to our Boston audience, uh, I'll see you at our Digital Health Drinks Night tomorrow, Thursday, September 21st, 5.30 to 8.30. Um, we'll be talking about what does a 21st century healthcare delivery system look like. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, you can find uh, our upcoming events and shows on my Eventbrite page at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com and follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell to get, to get notice of events. So th uh, thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.